we turn in our Bibles this, eve- this afternoon to Exodus 3. Exodus chapter 3. We hear the inspired word of God. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, And to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore. And I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say, Unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together, and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you. And seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites 
and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. And now let us go. We beseech thee three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take as our text verse 3, or verse 2, but of necessity we're going to be engaged in more of the context here. We have verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, And behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Israel was experiencing affliction in Egypt. No one knows exactly when that affliction began, but we do know that they were being oppressed already during the time period when Moses was born. That oppression then lasted for decades, possibly even as long as 100 years. Now, it's hard for us to imagine the struggles and the difficulties of a people for that length of time under the intense hardship that they endured. That oppression continued for multiple generations. Now, part of the length of the time was because of the sinfulness of Israel. They loved and they were satisfied with their life in Egypt. And so they weren't quick to cry out for deliverance. But God was at work in their hearts. And God worked this cry. And God worked in them that desire. Now Moses and the Israelites had to learn to wait on the Lord. They had to wait so long from an earthly perspective. But again, God had a purpose. God was teaching that salvation is all of the Lord. Now as we think about Israel, in the midst of this affliction, we think of Moses and his circumstances. We think of the words of Psalm 77 as versified in Psalter 210, which we sang. Shall I his promise faithless find? Has God forgotten to be kind? Has he in anger hopelessly removed his love and grace from me? These are questions that would rise up in their minds. Moses, in the desert now, lonely, For a number of years, without any word from God, had to have been discouraged and bowed down. He didn't have a Bible that he could go to to read for encouragement. We know the experience. What child of God has not gone through days, weeks, months, sometimes even years of intense struggle, sickness, challenges, pain? adversity, and not experience these kind of thoughts. Where is God? Has he forgotten me? Doesn't he love me? 
But through it all, the psalmist expresses, as also Psalm 77 acknowledges, I trust him still, though in my grief no answer yet has brought relief. His trust remains in Jehovah. That's the lesson that God teaches us through our trials, and that's the lesson that God is teaching Israel here in the midst of Egypt. God is always faithful, and God never forgets to be kind. Now that's the lesson that the Church of Jesus Christ throughout all ages needs to hear. God is faithful, and God ordains different challenges, different struggles for the Church in every age in order that Through it, she might learn this glorious truth. But this truth is central here in this incident in the burning bush. The bush that was on fire, but not consumed. And we look at that, the bush that was not consumed. Note first the fire, secondly the name, and finally the trust. In the Old and New Testaments, we talk about the silent years. And when we talk about silent years, we're talking about time periods or years during which there was no new revelation from God. Hard times for the people of God. It seemed as though God was silent. The most familiar of these is during the time period after the last of the prophets, Malachi, until the time when the angel Gabriel came to Zacharias in the temple. For 400 years, no new Revelation had come from God, so that that was a time of extended silence. But now here in the early history of Israel, we have something similar, and a very similar time frame. From God's appearance to the patriarch Jacob, prior to his going down to Egypt, till now, we have 400 plus years with no new revelation. God had assured Jacob that he could go down to Egypt and that God would be with him and God would call him out. But now from that time forward, we don't read of any new revelation from God for 400 plus years. Moses now is 80 years old. He's living in Midian. He's a humble shepherd. When God finally makes his presence known again to his people after all of these years, And so Exodus 3 here records, in that sense, a momentous event. Moses here is working for Jethro, his father-in-law, also known as Ruel. He's driving a flock down into Mount Sinai when he comes to a mountain that's called Horeb. Now that mountain later is identified as the mountain of God. Likely it wasn't known by that designation previously, but it's this event that gave to it that name, the mountain of God. This mountain, Moses is watering his flock at when he notices in the distance a bush that's on fire, but it's not being destroyed. And that piques his curiosity. Burning bushes in the desert were a normal, commonplace. But a bush that's on fire and not being consumed, that was different. And so Moses, in curiosity, walks closer and closer to it in order to check out what is going on with this bush. Now the Moses that's walking up to this bush now is a very different man from the Moses that we've witnessed in chapter 2. To see him now, one would never know that he had spent time in the royal courts of Egypt. That he had been raised as Pharaoh's daughter. One would never see 
the fact that he had at one time received great praise from his teachers. That had been long ago. His way of life now was very different from back then. Now, his words are few. His appearance is very rough. And Moses has been changed. He's been transformed by God. There's a gentleness. There's a kindness. There's a patience. There's a meekness. There's a childlike trust that's evident now in Moses. And Moses now is about to experience in Midian a lesson that would far exceed all that he had learned previously in the courts of Pharaoh. God's invisible providence is to lead him to this bush. And as a shepherd now led to this bush, God now brings him to see a wonder. He watches, and this bush is not reduced to ashes. Why? How could this be? Moses is now 80 years old. We read of that in Exodus 7, verse 7. So 80 years old now, having spent the last 40 years as a shepherd in Midian, he now comes to this bush, and he hears a voice from heaven that stops him. Moses, Moses, we read in verse 4. And Moses says, Here am I. And God says, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Moses comes into direct contact with Jehovah God. Now what is the bush a symbol of? The bush here is a symbol of Israel. Israel in the midst of all of her afflictions. This bush would likely have been a bramble bush, a thorn bush, something similar to bushes that will blow across the prairie, something that's worthless, something that is of no value. And it's striking that in the parable of Jotham, the son of Gideon, he compares a number of different plants and different bushes, and then he makes application to the fact that the bramble bush is the lowliest of bushes, and that bush is like God's people. God's people aren't to be compared to a rose bush with beautiful roses, but to a lowly bramble bush, a bush that would be discarded, that would be burnt with fire. Now God is distinct from the bush, so that the bush is distinct, according to verse 4, and God, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. We read in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. The bush then representative of God's people. Now there's a number of things that we want to see here with regard to the symbolism. First of all, Moses sees a small flame in the midst of the bush. That small flame represents the presence of Jehovah. We read in verse 2, the angel of Jehovah appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now, why does God represent himself in a flame of fire? We find, as we search the scriptures, references to God as a fire often. Hebrews 12, verse 29 states, Our God is a consuming fire. And that's quoting Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. The Lord thy God is a consuming fire. Fire always indicates two things. It indicates purification and it indicates destruction. And those two are pertinent with regard to God. God is as a flaming fire, one who 
destroys the wicked, and one who purges, who purifies his people. Now the significance of God then in the bush, in a flame of fire, is that God is holy. And as a holy God, he always demands perfection. He demands obedience. When men and women walk in disobedience, when they walk contrary to his will, Jehovah God is filled with wrath and with sore displeasure. And that wrath is represented in that consuming fire that destroys the sinner. God appears now in the wilderness in all of his wrath against sin. But secondly, the entire bush is set aflame with fire. This symbolizes the fact that the people of God, as the nation of Israel, are engaged in fierce persecution, fierce tribulation. And while that bush burns, God explains to Moses that he had seen the affliction of Israel and the oppression by which the Egyptians oppressed Israel. Jeremiah talks in chapter 11, verse 4, of Egypt as an iron furnace. The burning bush points to Israel's oppression in Egypt. She's in Egypt, the bush representing Israel, and now she's experiencing tremendous oppression. And that oppression is at the hands of God. Jehovah God is sovereign in all of this. It's not Pharaoh that is to be blamed. Jehovah God is the one who has ordained it. That small flame of fire, which appeared in the bush, set the bush on fire. Jehovah God is the one who is unleashing his wrath, his anger, but also his purifying work to accomplish this salvation of his church. He sent that persecution. Israel sinned against God, and there were consequences. And God sends consequences because of sin. Stephen in Acts 7 reveals that Israel was a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. God's chastisement, God's punishment was upon them. Now, they would have been consumed under the heavy wrath of God had they not been God's people. And therefore, the fact that that bush is not consumed is because Jehovah is in the midst of her. Israel is God's chosen people. And as such, they're not the objects of God's wrath and hot displeasure, but they're the object of God's love, God's favor, and God's grace. God was displeased with their sin. God has no delight in sin. But these were a people on whom he had set his love from all eternity, and a people then whom he would preserve and keep. And that points to that wonder, and the bush was not consumed. Here, beloved, is the wonder of this history. And in this, we see the wonder of the gospel in this history. Again, it was common to see dry bushes that were in the desert that were immediately, due to lightning or whatever, quickly consumed in a matter of a few moments by fire. According to the Hebrew language here, this bush is burning intently. But something happens contrary to the laws of nature. The bush is not consumed. Israel, though she's experiencing the fires of persecution and hardship, though Pharaoh is unleashing all of his wrath against Israel, trying to kill her firstborn, trying to destroy the nation, she's not destroyed. As a matter of fact, 
she is flourishing. Now Israel and Moses may have thought God has forgotten. Where is God? Why is God allowing Pharaoh to have the upper hand? Why is it that it seems as though the devil is winning? The devil seems to be having his way, killing the children in Egypt, persecuting and oppressing them with hardship so that many of them are dying. Where is God? Has he forgotten his church? God had not forgotten. God was in the midst of her. So that we find Egypt as a picture of the bondage of sin. We find Israel in the midst of that bondage of sin. But she's not destroyed because Jehovah God, in his faithfulness, is watching over her. And why is that? Because of God's sovereign, eternal love, but especially because of Jesus Christ, who stood in her place and took upon himself the wrath that she deserved. Jesus, who was destroyed in her place in order that she might live. God's purpose with his church was not to destroy, but to purge, to purify. Zion is redeemed through judgment. God, in his love and in his faithfulness, will not consume them. And that's the beautiful promise of Malachi. Malachi 3.6, I am Jehovah, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. I am Jehovah, I change not. If God changed, and if he adapted to our sin and our actions and conduct, God would cast us off. But because of his faithfulness, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God makes use of trials as chastisement. A father who loves his children admonishes, he cracks, and he turns them to himself in love. God in his faithfulness Here's their cry. And God calls Moses now, his servant, to bring about their deliverance. God will deliver them with a mighty hand. And God maintains his justice, his integrity, in teaching his children, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. God preserves and keeps her by a wonder of his grace. And that's seen especially in the name that God reveals here to Moses. What is that name? We read of it in verse 6, and then again we read of it in verse 14. I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then I am that I am. God is Jehovah. He is the faithful covenant-keeping God who reveals himself to his people as I am that I am. For the first time in the history of the world, God here teaches his church the significance of his name. And he does it through this marvelous experience. The name Jehovah is the most important name of God. In the Old Testament, it's sometimes called the name. Anyone who blasphemed that name was worthy of death. But that name was seldom even used. Often it was just referred to as the name. Or the Israelites would just call Jehovah Yah. But most of them didn't even dare take Jehovah on their lips. It was deemed to be a holy, reverent name that was seldom used. But here God teaches Israel the significance of that name. And therefore of his own 
blessed being in connection with a groaning church. Here's a church groaning in the midst of persecution. And here's his revelation. I am Jehovah, the unchangeable God of heaven and earth, the independent one, the I am that I am. Now, if you think about that, that's something that we can't say about ourselves. We're constantly changing. I am not what I am now because time changes. And a second or two later, I'm older. So never can we say, I am that I am. I always was. Whereas Jehovah God is the same yesterday, the same today, the same tomorrow. No creature can ever confess that. You're different yesterday. You're different today. You're older tomorrow. And you are what you are because of your parents, because of various circumstances and experiences in life. But Jehovah God, the creator of heaven and earth, the sole fountain of all good, is the one who is the sovereign Lord of all. He's the source of all life, and he's self-existent. He's absolutely independent. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. I am that I am. God comes to fickle, changeable, mortal men and women, and he says, I am your God, and I forever will be your God. I am that I am, and I make a promise, a promise, and I never will swerve from that promise. God could find no one by which he could swear, and so he swore by himself. And that promise is that Jehovah God is faithful to his covenant. He will not sway from his promise to save and to deliver his people. Israel deserved to be consumed by God. We deserve to be consumed by the living God. But God only chastens them in love because of his promise. Jehovah God choosing to himself a people whom he had chosen, whom he would preserve and keep to all eternity. And God's faithfulness seen in that he is the God of our fathers. He comes now to Moses and says, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. Now, did any of them have reason to believe that God ought to be their God? All of them were sinners. All of them had conducted themselves in a manner that would have made them deserving to be cast off. And yet God says, I am faithful. I am the God of your fathers, and I am the I am that I am. My covenant faithfulness is on the foreground here. Remember, Israel is in Egypt. It's a picture of bondage to sin. Who can deliver Israel out of that bondage? And God is teaching here, I am that I am. Salvation is all of the Lord. Your redemption, your salvation, your preservation is all because of Jehovah God's work alone. There's nothing that you've done to make yourself worthy. There's nothing that you've done that would make yourself better than any of the other nations. As a matter of fact, everything that you've done has made yourselves worthy to be destroyed and to be cast off. But I am that I am. Notice that God also appears here to Moses in verse 2 as the angel of the Lord. That angel is not merely a created angel as is the other, are the other angels. The angel of the Lord is God himself, as that becomes clear from this passage. It is God himself speaking out of the midst of the burning bush. 
The angel of Jehovah is the messenger through whom God dwells in the midst of his people. And that angel of Jehovah, as we're aware in the Old Testament, is a prefiguration of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. Jesus Christ is the messenger of God through whom God makes himself known. And through this angel of Jehovah, we're given to see that God views his church as they are in Christ. Christ is in the midst of her. And that's the gospel in our text. Jesus Christ is present in the bush that is not consumed. Jesus Christ is present in his church. As that church in the midst of this world is afflicted, she's tormented, she experiences hardship and troubles. What is her hope? Wherein does she put her trust? In Jesus Christ, who dwells in the midst of her, so that she will not be consumed. God sets up an event here, a burning bush, in order to give a revelation concerning his name. And he accomplishes that with promises. Promises that are marvelous and wondrous. As God now promises that he will remember his church. That he will never cast her off. And that his saints are to put their trust in him alone. God comes to Israel in the context of her bondage in Egypt. Israel is tempted by the gods of Egypt. And that's going to become evident increasingly as they leave Egypt. And as they constantly are looking back to Egypt. They want the leeks, the garlic, as well as the gods of Egypt. Jehovah God, the I am that I am, comes and says, Don't look to the gods of the heathen. How can the gods of the heathen help you? What can they do? They're fickle. They're changeable. They're the product of men's imagination. I am that I am. This revelation, beloved, ranks among the greatest of the self-revelations that God has given to his church. And that's set forth even in the fact that the name of God would be established as a memorial to the generations. That comes out in verse 15. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. What are we to teach our children? That Jehovah God is the I am that I am. This is the memorial that we testify of concerning the hope of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, how does this apply to Israel in Egypt? God says to Moses, Do you think that I have forgotten you? Do you think that I have forgotten you? Moses has spent now 40 years wandering in the wilderness. He's been with Jethro. He's been watching sheep as a shepherd. God says, Moses, do you think I've changed since I gave promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Even though Israel has sinned, even though you've sinned, I've yet remembered you. And I brought you into trouble because of your sin. I've caused Egypt to oppress you, but I've never forgotten you. I am that I am. Now, in addition to that, God is saying to Moses, don't look to the gods of Egypt and turn the Israelites away from those gods. The gods of Egypt, they're no help. They're not faithful. They've not been with you. I am the everlasting God who will preserve and will keep you, who loves you and will love you with an everlasting love. 
Now again, imagine Moses in the midst of the desert, the backside of the desert, as the passage says. He spent time. He doesn't know what God's purpose is, how God's plan is going to be realized. Despairing because he knows that his people are in bondage and that the bondage is intensifying. These words must have stirred Moses to the depths of his being. Here was the hope. Here was the longing of his life. When he sat on the knees of his mother, he learned about God's promises to deliver Israel. He learned about Abraham, about Isaac, and about Jacob. And during his youth, he had applied himself to his studies to seek to be used by God. Now the voice of God is assuring Moses, I am faithful to my promise. That time is going to come. And not only are you going to witness that wonder, you are going to be actively involved in it. You are going to be the one through whom I am going to work that deliverance. On the foreground here is God's covenant faithfulness. God promised, and God will not forget his promises, and God will bring it to pass. And beloved, therein is the hope of the church throughout all ages. Has God forgotten to be kind? Has God cast me off? Has God no longer been able to listen or hear my prayers? This cannot be true. He is Jehovah. He is the I am that I am. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is my God. And in his faithfulness, he will continue to preserve his church. How? Again, through his anointed Christ. He set Christ as his anointed, as the head of his church, so that he could represent us. And Jesus Christ took upon himself all of our sin. And the waves of the wrath of God were poured out upon him. And as those wrath, as that wrath and those billows poured out on Jesus Christ, the fires of the wrath of God, he was not consumed. He bore it as our representative. And the Son of God came out of the fires victorious, pledging the wonder of his sacrifice as that which was necessary to satisfy the justice of God for all those whom he represented. His perfect sacrifice, his righteousness, ours. The comfort of God's people throughout all ages is found in this wonder. Jesus Christ is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. He took upon himself that punishment that we deserve. And now as we experience troubles and difficulties and challenges, we know it's not because of God's anger. These are expressions of his love. This is his chastisement. In all of it, God assures us the bush will not be consumed. The great I am is the faithful one. He always answers prayers. He always gives grace according to need. And even though agony and sorrow and grief may be our lot, though we're small, we're insignificant, though fear and dread take hold of us and temptations threaten us and even draw us into their grip, here is the great I am. I am that I am. I dwell in the midst of my saints, in the midst of my church, and hell will not prevail against her. She will not be destroyed because Christ is in the midst of her. 
We put our trust in the I am that I am. And we don't merely give that expression with our lips. We cling to God by faith. And we put our trust in him as the one through whom alone there is hope and deliverance. God calls us to trust him in all things. And we think again of Psalm 77. I trust him still, though in my grief no answer yet has brought relief. I trust him still. He's the Holy One. He's the I am that I am. Even though I can't understand, I can't see it, I can't fathom it. Moses couldn't fathom. Why would Israel have to suffer like this? Why would he be the one now that would be used by God to deliver Israel? What place could he occupy? He now saw himself more clearly in terms of his weaknesses, his inadequacies. How often doesn't it shame us when we realize that we were anxious, we were afraid, that we were all consumed with worry? And we look back and we realize that we weren't walking by faith. We were focused on the things that were here below. We were walking by sight. And shame fills our hearts. We cover our faces. And we put our trust in the I am that I am. We look to the one who is in control of the present as well as the future. And when we think of the future, we think of the ever-burning bush that is not consumed. Moses, after 40 years in the wilderness, the children of Israel, after 400 years, learning, trust God. Whatever the way of God is with you, whatever the path he leads you, whatever you might be inclined to think of, though you might be inclined towards Psalm 77, as David was at times, as the child of God is inclined, this is the lesson, beloved, that we take home this weekend, every day of our lives. The bush is not consumed. Christ is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. I am that I am is the hope and help of God's people. My confidence is not in me. It's not what I can see. It's not what I can accomplish. It's not in the church. It's not in people. My confidence is in Jehovah God, who is faithful to his promises. And approaching God with reverence, as Moses here does, we also... Dare not look up. We know our sinfulness. We know our unworthiness. We don't deserve to be the objects of his love. We don't deserve to be cared for. We deserve to be cast off and forsaken. And yet, he draws us to himself. He assures us of his love for us. And he sends us away. Go and sin no more. We know how much sin clings to us. We confess our sin. We cry out for mercy. We put behind us those sins of hatred and slander and earthly-mindedness and worldliness, and we put our trust in Jehovah God alone. In the everlasting God, there is peace. And we look forward to the day when we will sing his faithfulness to all eternity. This is the hope of the people of God. Think of Psalm 46, verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. Beloved, this God is your God and my God. He knows the struggles. He knows the challenges through which he leads us individually, through which he leads us as churches, and he's not forgotten to be kind. As he leads us through the waters, through the fires, 
he remembers his promise. And he will preserve and keep us to all eternity as the I am that I am. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen us and strengthen our faith. Grant that in the midst of fear and trouble and anxiety, we might look to thee. And that thy word, thy promises might bolster us. And that we might ever cling to the wonder of the anointed one, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom our sins are forgiven and through whom we have peace. Amen.